Hello, everyone. Super excited to share with you the second part in our real estate investing series with Paula Pant. If you have not yet listened to the first part in the series, you can find it on our podcast feed. It's episode 142 or for ease of access, you can find it at choosefy.com slash 142, choosefy.com slash 142. In that show, we helped unpack Brad Barrett's speculative investment in real estate that we estimate cost him well over $100,000 in compounded returns. We also use that as a compare and contrast to explore Paula's own path with real estate and, and how powerful the framework that she's used has been in her own personal development and as a vehicle to her own financial independence. On today's episode, we want to go a little bit farther. Uh, one of our biggest takeaways was looking at real estate as a not as speculation, which I think so many of us fall prey to, but as a business investment, thinking about real estate investing as a business. And as a business, the numbers need to come first and foremost. They have to make sense. If you can have confidence in the numbers, you can have confidence in your system, and it can be a fantastic path to building these income streams. We are going to be going back to that, and we're going to be fleshing out both turnkey rental programs. There's a bunch out there and that's a giant umbrella term and we need to really parse the difference and explore what our options actually are. And beyond that, regardless of whether or not you decide to use a turnkey program or not, explore something that I think is critical and separates out the one-off investors from those that find themselves doing this 10 or 15 years down the road. And that is build a team. Paula is going to help share with us how she went about tackling both of these uh, why she prefers individual investing, and how she would go about finding team members to support this. Welcome to the Ultimate Crowdsourced Personal Finance Show. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, we The conversation, honestly, the conversation last time, the framework that it created for just thinking through the options that are out there as an individual real estate investor was invaluable to me personally and based on the feedback that I've seen to our community as well. What I wanted to do with the second conversation is turn our attention more to turnkey and deal syndication types of real estate. And it, this is really closely tied to what Brad and Ed are actually doing that they both have their own background, as we discussed in Brad's case with real estate. <laughs> Not a positive background. <laughs> but what they've decided to do is they are going to be attempting to try a form of a turnkey real estate investing. But there's a lot of terminology that would need to be introduced to our audience. And I was hoping that you could uh, just kind of help us think about what's out there as well so that maybe we could come up with a list of questions to start researching. That sounds perfect. There's a lot of jargon in the world of real estate investing. And so let's go through it all and let's kind of differentiate all of the different options so that all the listeners can wade through the choices to f figure out what's right for them. Awesome. So let's jargon. I love it. Let's let's start with, I just mentioned two terms that I've heard you use. So deal syndication mm -hmm. versus turnkey real estate. What, what does that mean practically? 
Sure. All right. Let's uh, group these into three buckets. Now, with traditional real estate investing, you know, if you think about traditional landlording, Mr. and Mrs. Jack and Jill, they buy a house, they rent it out to some tenants. That's the traditional model of real estate investing. With turnkey investing, they would go to a company and that company essentially sells what they they use the word turnkey to indicate that you don't have to do any, theoretically, you don't have to do any upfront work in getting that place rent ready for the first tenant. So a turnkey company's stated value add, and whether or not they actually provide this is a subject of debate, but their stated value add is that they search for a good deal, negotiate hard for that good deal, purchase that deal, do all of the initial renovations required to get it rent ready for the first tenant. And then in some cases, depending on the company, they may or may not actually find that tenant and place that tenant in there and then sell you that property. And so the purported value add for a turnkey company that sells houses is that they are selling you as an individual or as a family. They're selling you a specific house that you would own wherein they do all of that upfront legwork. Because remember, when we talk about rental properties, and I to pull back a little bit and look at this at a bigger conceptual level, rental properties are a source of passive income, but passive income is not a euphemism for free money. Passive income is front-loading the workload so that you can enjoy the rewards down the road. But front-loading the workload is a significant workload, the workload of finding a really good deal and negotiating for it and and rehabbing it after you buy it, if that's necessary, that's a huge strain. And so a lot of people look to turnkey companies in order to essentially outsource that drain. But that doesn't mean that they are the proper solution. And we can go down that rabbit hole in a moment. Oh, go down that rabbit hole. We shall. <laughs> Brad, I think you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I have a whole bunch of questions, Paul, and that was a great explanation. I, I guess with all of these turnkey companies, are are some of them just marketplaces? Or at, like as you described it, many of them do all of that that front-loading the work, right? They're purchasing mm-hmm. it. You're actually buying from them. So mm-hmm. they have some skin in the game, right? They're, they're making some profit also. But are mm-hmm. there some instances that you know of where that turnkey company just operates as a marketplace? By marketplace, if you mean they simply buy several properties and then try to flip those properties, that is more commonly done by wholesalers. Wholesalers will, they'll find distressed properties that are not currently on the market. Um, So they might send out a postcard campaign, for example, or a direct mail campaign. They'll find these properties, they'll get them under contract, and then Before they close on the property, they will flip that contract or assign that contract to another buyer. So wholesalers and wholesaling companies can, in that regard, create a marketplace in which they're not, quote unquote, adding value. They're not renovating the property, but they are finding these deals. And then once they find those deals and lock them in under contract, they then flip that contract, thereby creating sort of a secondary marketplace outside of the multiple listing service or MLS, which is the that primary public marketplace. So Paula, as I understand it, that's how traditional real estate investing has always worked with these turnkey companies. And that makes sense. They're doing all the work. They're buying these things. You're just buying it from them. If the numbers make sense for you, then okay, you buy from them. But they're doing a significant amount of this and making a lot of profit. 
are there ways that these online companies, these new marketplaces or crowdfunding sites, are they changing the game at all? There are many new businesses within the fintech space, the the financial technology space, that are redesigning the way that people buy and sell homes. And so there are some companies that will, they will create a website in which they hold the the home um, and they, they essentially serve as a matchmaker between the buyer and the seller. There are some companies that purchase a home directly from a given seller, uh, and they offer the proposed value that, hey, we'll buy your home from you, and we will let you choose the closing date. They offer this value add to the seller that rather than listing your property and wondering when it's going to sell, we'll agree to buy your property at a fixed price. You can choose the closing date, so you can set that date to whatever is convenient for you. You know, And then they purchase those homes, and then they they work both sides of the transaction because then they own the home and then they they go on to sell it. So there are several companies that essentially use the the web as a way of facilitating deals and don't do any of the rehabilitation work on the property. If there is an instance where you're basically buying real estate through the internet. I'm not sure if if you personally have ever bought sight unseen. I'd be curious just in your own no. in your own experience what would you be looking for? What type of reports? What type of metrics? Like, what would you ask as Paulo, the real estate investor? What would you ask to help inform myself and Ed to ask those similar intelligent questions? Well, first and foremost, I would not be concentrating or directing my questions to the company that is selling the property, because that's like asking a barber if you need a haircut. I would be seeking out third-party sources of information. So if I wanted to buy 123 Main Street, then rather than ask the company, hey, can you give me data about this property? What I would do is I would independently hire a licensed home inspector to go to that home and do an independent inspection. And it would not be an inspector that that turnkey company recommends. It would be somebody whom I find on my own through a Google search or through a referral from another investor. So I would send a licensed uh, inspector to that property. I would also, and this is redundant, and some people may argue that it's unnecessary, but I would also, in addition to that, hire a licensed general contractor to do a second redundant walkthrough. That's going to cost a few hundred dollars, but in my opinion, an extra three, four hundred dollars is a great use of money to have two independent third parties provide two different sets of eyes on that property. Paul, I have one more question. You said, and I'm furiously writing down your quotes here because they're awesome. You said- We have video. He is actually <laughs> furiously writing. Have you, you noticed can, that? You can see It's got to be very gratifying. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying passive income is not a euphemism for free money. And you're talking about front-loading the workload, which makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. I get that. On the other hand, I've also heard you talk about appreciation being speculation. And, and just bear with mm-hmm. me here because this is my own just hang-ups with real estate of- I did concentrate on, oh, am I going to be able to sell this for more? Whereas mm. now I'm looking at real estate through the lens of, does this make sense as a business? For me, it doesn't matter who I'm buying it from. Like if this turnkey investor made money on his or her own by finding some great deal, rehabbing it and then selling it to me, but it still made sense to me mm-hmm. according to like the 1% rule and all this stuff. And I think that this is going to be a standalone business for me, even though I'm not doing that front-loading the workload, does that still make sense or am am I misreading this somehow? 
Oh, I have absolutely no objection to people being compensated for their work. If somebody handles a task for you, of course, they should be paid for it. That's wonderful. The issue is that so much of what happens over the course of the initial selection, the rehab, and the tenant placement is subject to a lot of judgment. Like you need critical judgment to be able to make a lot of daily decisions within that. It can be easy to find yourself in a situation in which even if both parties are acting honestly, your definition of what is considered to be an acceptable rehab, your definition of what is considered to be good standards, your definition of what is considered to be clean and habitable might be different from theirs. And in addition to that, the materials that are chosen, you know, if they're doing a rehab, are they going to choose materials for long-term durability or are they going to choose materials that will fall apart within a few years because they don't care, they don't have that interest in long-term durability, they're just selling it to you, right? So they don't have skin in the game for the long-term. So there are plenty of opportunities for the decision-making that from the perspective of somebody who is who doesn't have skin in the game beyond a one-year time span versus the perspective of someone who does and who's making rehab decisions for it from with a 10-year or 20-year framework, those that set of decision making is going to be widely different. And the set of what you agree on as standards is going to be widely different. And so the potential for misunderstanding is great. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That is really, really helpful to think of as a framework. So but talk me through this because again, you know where I'm coming from, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm coming from a place of fear with this. And just knowing how my brain works, there's going to be this paralysis by analysis. And you talked about judgment. How do I get that judgment? I, I'm not asking like a flipping question. I genuinely mean mm-hmm. that. Like, I'm so concerned that I'm not going to take action. And by looking at something and saying, okay, this is turnkey. This is something that I can walk into. The numbers make sense to me. The, the one thing I can fall back on as safety, the numbers make sense. Maybe I can get my feet wet here with something like this, even a a lower cost house, that then I can somehow get that judgment for the next one. Like, is it an absolute hard no for you? Getting all that information first before you get your first property. Is that part of this whole learning process that is absolutely essential in your opinion? Well, see, here's my concern. Oftentimes, particularly when people are afraid of investing in rental properties, the performance of that first property shapes their opinion about the entire universe of rental property investing forever. So you have one single data point that has an unduly large influence on how you feel about this entire genre of investing. While I understand that it can be comforting to feel as though you have essentially a parent figure who's taking care of everything for you and wrapping this up in a nice tidy package and putting a bow on top and putting it under the Christmas tree for you. It's also the case that you might be, even when both parties are transacting with total honesty, it might simply be the case that your expectations are mismatched. Remember, happiness is when expectations match reality. And when there is a delta between expectations and reality, that is the source of disappointment oftentimes. And so my concern is that if this turnkey company 
puts in materials that fall apart rather quickly, such that three years into owning this property, you discover that you need to tear out not just the carpeting, but also the subfloor because they didn't bother ripping out this old like dog urine stained subfloor, which you would have done if you were handling the project, but they didn't because they don't have an incentive to do so. If three years down the road, you discover that you have to do that, or you realize that while you're doing that anyway, you may as well rip out the popcorn ceilings because they're ugly and you could get higher rent if you did it. But now that here's this whole other project, those types of things start to snowball. And if that's your experience with house number one, then what effect will that have on your psyche for houses number two, three, four, five, six? Yeah, Brad, what effect will that have on your psyche? (laughs) (laughs) So when we started this episode, we talked about a couple different types of deals. And one of the ones that we mentioned was deal syndication. And I want to just kind of slow down on that and get a summary. My understanding, when you're talking about deal syndication, basically you're talking about effectively, the best, probably the easiest way in my mind to think about it is you are buying stock in a company that owns massive amounts of real estate. Is that close? Am I understanding that correctly? Or is there, and can you provide a more accurate summation of what that means to get involved in deal syndication? Think about the difference between choosing an individual stock versus choosing a mutual fund. If you're buying one particular house, if you're buying 123 Main Street, you are, in essence, choosing an individual stock. But if you are buying a mutual fund, you can't just throw your money blindly at any actively managed mutual fund. If And I, I realize actively managed mutual fund is a bad word around here. But let's just use this as a, as an example, right? Uh, imagine that for some reason you decide to buy an actively managed mutual fund. Your job is to choose a fund manager. That's essentially what you do if you go into a deal syndication type of framework. So with a deal syndication framework, what you're doing is you're choosing a professional manager who manages an individual deal. For example, you might go on a deal syndication website or a crowdfunding website, and you will be one of many investors who buys an apartment complex in Fort Myers, Florida. On the surface, this might feel safe because there's safety in numbers. And look, if everybody else is doing it, then the bandwagon effect says that I'm making a good decision. But choosing that particular fund manager and also choosing that particular apartment complex and choosing that that's going to be in Fort Myers, Florida. I mean, why that location? What's the positioning? How efficient are the operations of that manager? What's their track record of management, right? These are all the questions that you have to ask. And so going into a deal syndication type of platform is not a get out of due diligence free card in the same way that buying an actively managed mutual fund if you're actually going to do that correctly, which I don't recommend doing, does not absolve you from the same level of due diligence that you would have to do if you were buying an individual stock. In either regard, you're buying a particular investment, which means you don't have a diversified portfolio, you have concentration risk, and you have to do higher due diligence, you know? I think probably doing your due diligence on deal syndication feels like another episode entirely. Probably going to set that one to the side. The other topic that we talked about turnkey rentals. We kind of use that as a framework. And I feel like we went down two forks, one of them being some middleman intermediate company finds 
and sells you a, a rental that they have already done all the heavy lifting on. That this thing is ready to go, take the keys, it's yours. That was one That was one aspect. And the other one is effectively a marketplace where you are able to find rental properties as opposed to finding maybe a single family house or something like that. You're actually finding something that is being marketed as an investment rental property. There, there's a slight different pivot there. Let's assume that this hypothetical Brad and Ed after looking at all their options, decide to proceed and purchase a property. I mean, they, you know, they're kind of going down this route. They think they found something on the marketplace that works for them. The, the keys have been handed over and now they are a landlord. What I think mm-hmm. separates out someone that gets started on the path for someone that continues to scale, so it's a one-off versus a, an enterprise, basically, is that ability to build a team. I don't think that we can put enough emphasis on the fact that the reason that you are still doing real estate now is because you have scaled and built a team. Is that mm-hmm. a correct assumption? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So I think probably it's worth it for our audience to, if that is the case, to actually, because that's really going to be the biggest thing here. If, if building the team is what gives you the confidence to go and say, I have the bandwidth to look for another deal now, I think actually focusing on how you went about and how mm-hmm. we should go about thinking about building a team would probably be the most valuable thing that we could do with the remainder of this episode. Absolutely. So first, before we go there, there's one final kind of note that I want to make about the marketplace. And actually, this ties in really well with the notion of building a team, because what is the difference between purchasing a single family, uh, assuming that both properties are rent ready for the first tenant? So assuming that both properties have a certificate of occupancy or or could qualify for a certificate of occupancy, meaning they're, they're habitable, they're safe. What is the difference between buying a single family home versus going to a marketplace that sells homes that are marketed as rental properties. The difference is the presence of a tenant. That's, as far as I can see, that's the only difference between single-family home A versus single-family home B. So if what you're paying a premium for is the presence of a tenant, I mean, first of all, to frame that in purely mathematical terms, how much would it cost you to pay a property manager to do some showings and put a tenant in there? I can tell you exactly. It'll be at most one month's rent. So the premium that you should pay if you go to this marketplace is no greater than one month's rent. Maybe if you want to be very generous, two months rent if you want to account for that first month of vacancy. That's the max that you should pay. Second of all, if you are relying on somebody else to choose a tenant for you, how do you know that you approve that tenant? Remember, a tenant is functionally somebody who is living in your home, and that's kind of a big deal. So is their criteria for tenant selection the same as yours? Would you have approved that tenant if that tenant had come to you? That's a decision that you get to make if your property manager does the showings and places the tenants. It's not a decision that you get to make if you inherit a tenant from the seller. So On the uh, MLS, the multiple listing service, oftentimes if a house is for sale and the buyer has to inherit a tenant from the seller, that's often seen as a drawback. So I think it's a little bit amusing that there's a marketplace that has framed that as a benefit. Like they've taken the bug and turned it into the feature. That's awesome. (laughs) I love this. All right. So this is fantastic. There are so many people in our audience who have purchased property and inherited a tenant, right? I mean, that Mm -hmm. is, uh, I'm sure that's actually relatively common. How did you go about building your team? Like, I mean, before you have gone through this vetting process of trial and Mm -hmm. error, like just help us go through who is on your team now? Sure. So we'll start with the property manager since we've been talking about tenant placement. So with the property manager, a couple of things I've gone through too. I hired one and she was great, but I didn't have enough context to recognize how great she was. 
she charges on the higher end. So she charges a 10% of gross rent. Plus, if she places a tenant, she charges one month's rent for that. That's on the higher end. There are a lot of property managers who might charge 8% or 9%. Some of them go down to 7% even. And unfortunately, and I, and I, I fell into this trap myself, there was a part of my brain that said, maybe I can get a cheaper deal. You know, like I did the the math and the savings of 1% compounded over the next 250 years turns into a lot of money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so in my unwise quest to over-optimize, to focus on the peas rather than the steak, I then made the mistake of hiring a different property manager for a different property. He only charged 4%. <laughs> they charged 9%. Um, so it was a savings of 1%. And I patted myself on the back and thought that I was brilliant and everybody lived happily ever after. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. What actually ended up happening is that I then developed the context and the wisdom to understand uh, comparatively what the difference between these two were. And they are as follows. And I hope that this information can help the listeners evaluate property managers as they're working with them. So a good property manager. Now, if you look at listings, listings of rental properties on the MLS or listings of rental properties on Craigslist, you will see a huge variation in the quality of the listing, the quality of the listing photos, in how well written the ad is. You know, does it just have some basic information that looks like it was thrown up by a second grader in, in 4.2 seconds? Or does it actually read like well-crafted copy with really good photos? That right away can clue you in as to how attentive and detail-oriented and just how much the property manager cares. And so if you want to reverse engineer that and you're looking for a property manager, put yourself in the shoes of a tenant, go online, look at the neighborhood in which your rental house resides or exists, look from the perspective of a tenant at other rental properties in that neighborhood, and look at the other listings and look for the best written listings. Because the likelihood is that the property manager who's putting up the most polished listings are probably going to be the most professional ones. So that's step one that I would take when trying to find a property manager. And also criteria number one that I would evaluate after I've hired them and I'm trying to assess whether or not they're doing a good job. I love that. And I can actually, I'm going through the process of selling my home now, which is honestly even more than buying a home, it really puts you in the position of someone that's closer to real estate than as a buyer. A buyer, you're just like a very expensive Amazon shopper, effectively. You're looking at review, <laughs> you know. But as a seller, now you're thinking about this as a business owner. This is a massive, massive transaction. And it obviously goes the other way, but it's it's very interesting to be on the other side of it. And you become very acutely aware of how long your home sits on the market, how, how good the copy is, how good the pictures are. Like, wait till you're a seller to suddenly be able to evaluate how good an MLS listing is. that, that That's mm -hmm. truth right there. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Exactly. Let's, what's the next point? You to quote you, you are speaking to my soul right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And the same is true with rental listings. If a rental listing is very well written, then the management company that created that, that's the company that you want to hire. If it's not, avoid them because if they put that little care and effort into the listing, how much care and effort are they going to put into managing your property? So that's where I would start. And then beyond that, the issue with, an unprofessional property management company is that they often can let problems fester until they become 
even more expensive than they otherwise would have been. So if a tenant submits a complaint about, say, something that's leaking and the property management company drags their feet on it, well, that leak can turn into a very expensive water damage. If the tenant simply feels as though they're not getting good service. And so rather than renewing their lease, they decide to move out. Now you have a turnover and a vacancy. That creates an added expense. If the property management company doesn't do a walkthrough at a minimum of once a year, and there's a tenant who stays long-term, but then four years later when they go to move out, it turns out that they've just trashed the place and you have to redo everything. Well, that's a $10,000 to $15,000 mistake. So a bad property manager can be very, very expensive. And so what I would encourage all the listeners to do is when you are evaluating property managers, don't do what I did. Don't make the mistake of trying to nickel and dime a percent or two off of their fee. Go with the one who consistently shows the best results. Go with the one where when you contact them and you say, hey, what are the dimensions of the refrigerator? They get back to you right away. This is this is an actual example. I contacted a property manager once and I said, hey, what are the dimensions of the fridge? Because I was thinking about replacing the fridge. And they got back to me and they were like, oh, it's um 30 cubic feet. And I was like, well, great, thanks. Now I know how much water it's going to displace when I throw it into a lake. But what are the actual dimensions? I can't work with that if I'm shopping for a fridge. And that's just basic just like, renovation. Now I know how much water it's going to displace when I throw it in the lake. Tell me you have that written down somewhere. <laughs> what do I do with a cubic foot? Well, clearly you try to displace the water in the lake. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Sorry, sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, that, that that was what I said. I remember I remember exactly. I was sitting at a Thai restaurant. I checked my email because uh, that's the problem in and of itself. I probably shouldn't be checking email while I'm eating Thai food. But I checked my email. I got the email that said it's 30 cubic feet. And I, I remember exactly saying that line over the lunch table, <laughs> being like, <laughs> how can I possibly shop for another refrigerator with that information. I need to know the height and the width of the fridge. Come on, guys. Don't you do this for a living? So when you see examples like that, that's an indicator of unprofessionalism. And the mistake that I made was that I kept giving them the benefit of the doubt. I kept saying, well, they were a little sloppy here. They were a little sloppy there. Yeah, I had to follow up with them three times just to figure out the freaking width of the fridge. But that's okay. It's not a big deal. And I didn't just follow my gut, which was fire those property managers, fire fast. Yeah, Paula, that's a perfect example once you've already hired. But let's say you're me. You just gave me gold by saying, look for the people who are writing listings that you would be attracted to. So, I mean, clearly that is is a great one. But are there other things that I should be looking for when actually hiring a property manager in a town that I've never visited, never been to before, know nobody there? What else do I do I look for? Or how do I even make an intelligent decision beyond looking for these good lessons? One thing that I would do is, first, as context, property managers often specialize in a particular section of a, a given city, 
right? So a broad metropolitan area is is large and, you know, large metro areas, it might take two hours to drive from one side to the other. And so property managers often concentrate on particular sections of the city or particular neighborhoods. So what I would do, put yourself in the perspective of a tenant, go online and look at other properties in that same neighborhood or that same zip code and look at who has the bulk of the listings. And you'll find when you look at the property management companies that are representing properties in that area, you'll find a couple of names stand out. There are a few property management companies that have a disproportionate share of the listings in that area. And when you find that, those are the first ones that I would contact because it means that they have location familiarity, they have neighborhood familiarity, they're already working that turf. So that's one good way to start. Another way to start, most property management companies will have a website in which they show all of their listings. What you could do is go on their website, look at the listings that they have, make notes about what, or or take screenshots to look at what they have, wait for two weeks, and then go back and relook at the listings again to see which of those listings are still up for rent and which ones have been filled. And if you repeat that, let's say at two-week increments, you'll get a pretty good sense of how quickly they fill their spots. That's great advice. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's say that after doing some of their due diligence and finding one of these in-demand premium property managers that do high quality work, because we're not trying to cheapskate on this. We're, we're making sure the numbers work. It's built into our deal. We're thinking about that ahead of time, but we've got somebody on our team. The core, the foundation of our team is making sure these things stay filled with high quality tenants. And this property manager is doing that for us. We're now looking at adding additional members to our team. How many other people make up your, your team? So in addition to the property manager, there's also a general contractor and or a like handy person who I kind of always have on call. Now, the difference between the two, and I kind of refer to these as a, a general contractor versus a generalist contractor or handy person, a general contractor, which is abbreviated as GC, is a licensed designation And a general contractor is often hired for a major rehabilitation project. So if you're doing $15,000 worth of work on a property, you are demoing uh, the kitchen and all of the bathrooms, and you need not just a team of contractors, but also specialty subcontractors like electrical, plumbing, HVAC, then you would hire a general contractor who would essentially serve as the project manager over that entire scope of work. And that is a great member of your team to have when you need to do a large-scale rehab. But for smaller rehabs, it's nice to have kind of a a jack-of-all-trades handy person who you can call for minor repairs and maintenance. Now, I will say, if you are working with a property manager, that property manager is going to have multiple people who they already work with. So if, if you're investing out of state or out of town, then your property manager is going to already have these contacts lined up and they'll say, hey, I've got um, these three GCs that I normally work with, or I have this list of handy people who I work with, or this list of electricians or plumbers. So part of the value that they provide is that entree to those contacts. If, however, you do not have a property manager, let's say that you're uh, buying a rental property locally and you're looking for these people yourself, well, then the one of the first things that you want to look for are 
contractors who specialize in working with investors because they approach work differently from contractors who work primarily with owner-occupants. When you have an owner-occupant who wants a contractor to work on a property, there's a certain degree of, frankly, administrative overhead that goes with serving that type of clientele. You know, you need a website, you need brochures, you need matching shirts. That's the type of stuff that you get when you're a contractor serving retail buyers or owner-occupants. When you're serving investors, you don't necessarily need that. You often, as a contractor, often operate on word of mouth. You know, you, you may have a team, but they certainly don't have like matching shirts with collars and a clipboard. And you get references to those contractors by talking to other investors. And so what I would do is, if you're local, go to meetups. And if you're not local, then go to online forums in which you can find other investors and get recommendations for contractors from them because you specifically want the ones who specialize in working with investors. Paul, I have a question in, I guess, scenario A. You've spent a lot of time kind of front-loading finding this property manager, and obviously you trust them, right? So you had a scenario where they have three general contractors. Mm -hmm. Do you then interview those general contractors? Do you just take the first name? Do you, what do you do once you've already trusted this property manager? How would you move forward? And if you do contact the GCs, what questions do you ask them? Mm. So what I do is, so the GC will go through the house and create a, an estimate for the repairs. And that estimate will be broken out into specific line items. So for example, that estimate might say interior and exterior paint will cost X amount of money trimming back the tree limb that is overhanging the roof is going to cost Y amount of money. Replacing the dishwasher is going to cost a Z amount, right? And they'll have different amounts at, for each different line item. What I've often seen is that general contractors will, sometimes when you look at that estimate, some of those line items will seem reasonable and other ones will be a little high or a little wildly off the mark, but you only get enough context to be able to know that if you have multiple line itemed estimates. So what I would do is I would collect at least two or three line itemized estimates, and then you can cross compare between the two. And at that point, you can you can start negotiating. I mean, what I actually just did this quite recently for one of my properties. I had a property manager go to her favorite general contractor. And he gave me a line itemized estimate for the renovations of the property. And then in this particular instance, I had a contractor who I've worked with personally, who's not affiliated with the property manager. And so in this particular case, I was a little biased because I wanted to award the job to him. So I just emailed him the bid with an email that had exactly one sentence in it. And I just said, beat this and the job is yours. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice. It, it's it's good to have a network. And I, li I like that a lot in terms of building out your team. And, and these three individuals really seem to be the core of that. I feel like once you like once you have those three in place, it starts to feel like this is manageable and this is something that you can scale out. And at that point, it's just looking for another deal that meets the requirements that you've stated when mm -hmm. doing your research. Absolutely. I mean, when you're looking for a deal, remember, regardless of whether you buy directly through the MLS or whether you buy through a wholesaler or whether you buy through a new fintech startup marketplace, 
or whether you buy through a deal syndication website, regardless of the medium through which you buy, the level of due diligence is the same. No platform is ever going to get you a get out of due diligence free card. And so ensuring that you are getting the deal that you think that you're getting is your responsibility. And often that means sending in third parties, um, you know, hiring that, as we talked about at the beginning, hiring a licensed inspector to go in and who is not affiliated with uh, any of the other parties in the transaction to go in and give you an independent assessment, hiring a general contractor to go in and give you a redundant independent assessment, looking rather than taking the seller's word for it when it comes to price history of the property or square footage of the lot, you know, going to the county website and running a public record search and pulling up those actual public records on a property so that you can see the county documents of the property that you're buying, like those those things are all your responsibility. And it doesn't matter if you're buying from A or B or C or D, regardless of the platform, that's the job of real estate investing at its core. Yeah, Paula, that is an amazing framework to approach this. So I cannot thank you enough. That helps me more than you can imagine. And I'm certain that it helps tens of thousands of people who are listening to this. All right, Paula, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We so appreciate your time. To our audience that's listening to this, maybe for some reason, <laughs> living in a vacuum this entire time, they've never heard of you before. What is the best <laughs> way for someone to find out more about your podcast, your show, and connect with your content? So I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast. You can find me wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And I also have a course on real estate investing. And it's actually open. Uh, we only open for enrollment twice a year. We open once in the fall and once in the spring. And it happens that this week, the week of September 23rd through September 27th, 2019, is the week of enrollment for our fall semester. So if you go to affordanything.com slash enroll, you can learn all about the rental property investing course and enroll if you are so inclined. Paula, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. To our audience, we are huge fans of Paula Pant and everything that she's doing. She's an amazing voice for the financial independence community, and we could not be more excited to announce that she is releasing this first rollout for her real estate course. You should definitely check it out. Due to changes in our schedule, I think we're releasing this one week ahead of time. So she gave the dates starting on the week of September 23rd. That course will be available, so definitely bookmark that. And if you're interested, this will be an incredible use of your time, and the ROI on this will be amazing. So... Definitely, we full-heartedly endorse this and hope that you will go check it out. If you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just let the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to choosefi.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free. And just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cap. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. 
You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.